0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Good evening. Welcome to a special edition of What Catholics Believe. The special edition is necessary tonight because uh, our host, Mr. Thomas Nagley, and his wife, Hannah, have been blessed with a little child, Camilla Felicity. But Hannah is now in the hospital with high blood pressure, and I ask you to please pray for her, that she... uh, uh, find a good level for blood pressure and return home uh, to her loving family. So please keep Hannah Nagley in your prayers this evening and going forward. And keep the whole Nagley family in your prayers, now that they've welcomed little Camilla Felicity among them. Now tonight I want to talk about a subject uh, that is, uh, in a sense, lo- looming large on the horizon right now. It's something that has been threatened for a long time, and yet the formation of the actual Synodal Church of Francis is actually uh, going to take place in the months of October and subsequent months. Uh, Francis is going to be heading up a Synod on Synodality. This is to bring to fruition, after a lot of talk and and delays, after all this, uh, this October Synod, is meeting after a full year delay from the time it was originally scheduled, in order to try to, quote-unquote, discern, thats a favorite word of the modernists now, to discern the meaning of synodality. And in order to discern the meaning of synodality, they're going to have a synod on synodality. And uh, they're going to apply the synodal way to the synod on synodality so that they can then define what synodality is and what it actually looks like. If this sounds like a a bit of an internal uh, contradiction, a chicken and egg sort of um, scenario, it it definitely is. But this is certainly a characteristic of the modernist way of thinking, which is a, a way of thinking that is completely built on contradictions and absurdities. Uh, In fact, the synodal church that Francis is building right now is going to be a church entirely of his own making. Uh, Despite what he's saying, it is going to be applying his own convictions to what the church should be. And uh, his concept of what the church should be is not what the Catholic Church actually is or was created to be, established to be, by our Lord Jesus Christ. So Francis's church, once he is Gets the the crew building it, constructing it at uh, the October uh, Synod on Synodality will not be the Catholic Church, but it will be a modernist construct. In fact, it will be laying the groundwork for the one world church, we would say, of the Antichrist. And I think it can be established very clearly, I think it can be proven very clearly that the church as Francis envisions it and the church. That he intends to build, like the Tower of Babel, is nothing but a modernist construct, which is the anti-Catholic Church. It is the anti-Church of Francis. I think it can be very easily demonstrated from Francis' own words. In fact, we need to refer to two different documents to demonstrate the fact that Francis's church is not the Catholic Church. And the first thing we need to turn to is the uh, document Pascendi Domenici Grecis, the famous encyclical of St. Pius X, issued on September 8th in 1907, which is often referred to under the English title of Condemning the Errors of the Modernist. In his encyclical of September 8th, 1907, Pascendi, St. Pius X, exposed the modernists as being the greatest threat to the Catholic Church, the greatest danger the Church has ever faced. Because, as St. Pius X said, they are within the Church, they are within her very clergy, and um, they are within her very veins and her very heart. And that positions them to do an enormous amount of damage. But also because the, the thinking of the modernists is so corrupt, that they would change the very nature of faith what faith is the virtue of faith in fact they would do away with the catholic concept of what faith means <clears throat> and uh, they would substitute for it a religious sentiment or some vague feeling or yearning of the heart for the divine and that they would answer they would answer that yearning with religious experience some kind of experience of the divine which is now going to be the source of all revelation of the divine to mankind through the individual's personal experience of the divine, whatever that means. So uh, we find that it is changing the very definition of faith that is the outset of the modernist adventure. And it helps to explain what kind of church the modernist envisions. The modernist wants to create, in this case, Francis. Wants to create before our very eyes. Um, how important is this synodal church to him? Uh, Francis actually speaks of that in the second document I'm referring to tonight. And that uh, is the document of his address uh, on to the uh, synod of families on the 50th anniversary of uh, Paul VI instituting the synod of bishops. And in that address, to that synod on the family, Francis announced his plan to establish his synod of church, and the date of that announcement was October 17th of the year 2015. In his address at the ceremony commemorating the 50th anniversary of the institution of the Synod of Bishops by Paul VI, Francis said this, From the beginning of my ministry as Bishop of Rome, I sought to enhance the Synod, which is one of the most precious legacies of the Second Vatican Council. For Blessed Paul VI, the Synod of Bishops was meant to reproduce the image of the Ecumenical Council, that's Vatican II, and reflect its spirit and method. Francis goes on to explain how Paul VI, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, all promoted the creation of the Synodal Church. And then he states, we must continue along this path. It is precisely this path of synodality which God expects of the Church of the third millennium. He states that synodality is a constitutive element of the Church and says that all are called to the commitment to build a synodal Church. And even explains that The new concept of synodality and the synodal church itself will give a new understanding to the role of the episcopacy and the papacy itself. So Francis is setting about changing all of these things in the light of his new synodal requirement of the church, which he says it's constitutive element. It is essential to his new church. It is of the very nature of his new church that it be synodal. And yet he admits that it is a a new development in the history of the church that he himself has discovered, that he himself is applying. There's no question, but he he is saying as much that he's inventing a new church. He's simply creating a new church, and he's uh, blaming the Holy Ghost for this. He's ascribing it to what he calls the Spirit who is leading all of this and is inspiring him to do this. Well, it is not the Holy Spirit, that is for sure, So we see that he considers the synodal church to be a a mission of his. This is his great mission in life right now, to uh, use whatever power he has to bring into existence, to give give birth to this monster of a synodal church as as he conceives it. Now, we need to understand that the synodal church that Francis is aspiring to create is actually the very church that was condemned by St. Pius X in his encyclical Against Modernism. Now, I admit it's difficult sometimes to follow this. St. Pius X, in writing his encyclical, explains that it's difficult to follow the explanation of the thought of the modernists. St. Pius X says that for one reason, one reason why it is difficult to follow <clears throat> the modernist thought is because the modernist is deliberately vague, and uh, he he crouches his uh, his ideas in terms, and also in kind of non sequiturs. He disperses his ideas uh, in so many ways that it's impossible to really follow them logically, and therefore to refute them uh, makes it very difficult to refute them because of the inconsistencies. Uh, of jumping one, from one thing to another, uh, we all know what it's like to have conversations with people who jump from one subject to another, and how difficult it is to address their, the errors and the truths of faith that we we know, and how it is to present them in a logical way, in a in a uh, consistent way, when the other person is consistently um, jumping from one subject to another to avoid to avoid any logical development and any logical conclusions. This is characteristic of the modernists. This is the very tactic of the modernists that they go to all the time. St. Pius X warns us as we read an encyclical on Pascendi uh, on, on modernism. We're going to see that difficulty but he tries, St. Pius X tries to draw the modernist lines of thought into a consistent manner of presentation so you can actually see the logical and, in many cases, illogical development of the modernist pattern of thought, if you can call it that. Um, But he warns us it's difficult to follow. So it is. When we talk with Francis or we talk about Francis, we read what he wrote, uh, we have difficulty at times following what he's saying because of the non-secretaries and so on. Uh, But we are duly warned by St. Pius X that it's going to take a bit of extra effort on our part But it's certainly going to be rewarded if we see clearly that the church that Francis is intending to create here, before our very eyes in his uh, his kiln over there at uh, the Vatican, uh, what is going to come out of his synodal process is not going to be the Catholic Church at all. Quite the contrary, it is going to be uh, the anti-church, his effort to substitute this new synodal church for the actual Catholic Church established by our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we turn to uh, Pope Pius X's encyclical, Pashendi, and we turn to his uh, paragraph 23, where he talks about the modernist concept of the Church and what the Church should be according to the modernist construct. And uh, this is what St. Pius X says. Try to follow what he says here. I'll read it and then comment on it. He says, A wider field for comment is opened when you come to treat of the vagaries devised by the modernist school concerning the church. You must start with the supposition that the church has its birth in a double need. The need of the individual believer, especially if he has had some original and special experience, to communicate his faith to others, and the need Of the masses when the faith has become common to many to form itself into a society and to guard increase and propagate the common good now that's one sentence and st. Pius X of course writing in Latin now has given us uh, this statement of the origin of the church according to the modernist notice it's a translation into English of course and uh, the Latin is so eloquent and so logical in its construction, it's much easier to follow, actually. The English not is not so tight and not so closely constructed. But still, the translation allows us to understand what St. Pius X is saying about the modernist understanding of the Church as being born of a need. <laughs> this is characteristic, by the way, of modernist thought, that everything that happens is a result of some kind of need, so there's a neediness in us, and the, the neediness is the mother of an invention, basically. For the modernist, that's true. <clears throat> and in this case, he says, the church arises from a twofold need. You have the need of the individual, and the individual has some kind of a religious experience where his religious sentiments uh, impels him now to come into contact with the divine. Some experience in his life has overwhelmed him with the sense of the divine. <clears throat> Maybe it's like an altar call or something like that that has moved him emotionally to do something. But he now he has experienced the divine and he wants to express it. Somehow he has to express it. And so his need to express that experience of the divine is actually his need to express his faith, because now that he's experienced the divine, he's had a faith experience, and now he needs to somehow express that in words, you see, and as he does so, he shares it with other people. Now, there's another need that arises from that, and that need is when a number of other people hear this individual expressing his faith experience, they want to share it. And so they begin to share it with each other, and they become kind of a community, kind of a, 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 a schola or a school around this individual, like our Lord, the modernist would say, who's expressing his experience of the divine, that all of these people then want to share with him. But the problem is, you see, they need now some, some organization to keep them together united in their common experience. When our Lord was alive on earth, of course, they had him as their focal point. But once he died, and for the modernist, the Jesus of history ended on the cross and the Jesus of faith began on Easter Sunday with the legend of the resurrection. Um, so when now we go to the Jesus of faith and you have the society of believers, followers of Jesus, who are together, now they need to organize themselves that's the second need they need to organize themselves into a body of believers that we know as the church so this is what St. Pius X says actually brought the church into existence the need of the individual believer to express his faith experience and gather disciples and then when he perishes the need of those believers then to continue their faith experience as a group as a body and thus form some kind of a a church. So uh, St. Pius X explains this much more succinctly than I do, but I hope my explanation gives you a little bit of an understanding there. Um, Notice, by the the way, that the word used by St. Pius X here, that um, the, the community of believers has to form itself into a mass, like the masses, not the holy sacrifice of the mass, but the mass in the sense of the communists and the Marxists who refer to the masses, the, 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 the nameless, faceless masses of people out there like the herd of people. <coughs> the church never refers to them as the masses, but the modernists will and the communists will, just the masses of believers out there. And so notice that the reason why they have to gather into society and a, a church is to guard, increase, and propagate the good of the community now of this faith believers. So St. Pius X asked the church the question then, what then is the church, according to the modernists? It is the product of the collective consciousness. Now, they use the word conscience here, but we've come to use the word conscience to mean a sense of right and wrong. But here we're talking about the modern sense of consciousness. It's the product of the collective consciousness, that is to say, of the society, of the the gathering of the individual consciences, which by virtue of the principle of vital permanence all depend on one first believer. So we have all of these believers now who've received their own faith experience from one common believer who is Jesus Christ, according to the modernists. And so Every society now, that it gets to this position where we have all of these believers who are all relating their personal faith experience back to sharing the faith experience of Jesus, their society now needs some governing authority. It needs some directing authority to keep them united, to guide its members to a common end, to conserve prudently the elements of cohesion which in a religious society are doctrine and worship. <clears throat> so St. Pius X actually goes on to say that as the church formed after Jesus' death, the church was formed to maintain its cohesion together. It needed some kind of principle of, of unity to bind it together. The church, as a community of believers, has to have a, a dogmatic presence, that is, truths that it believes, liturgical presence, that is, actually worship, that it adheres to, and disciplinary, norms that they will follow. St. Pius X uh, specifies these three kinds of things in which a society of believers have to be bound together. And his answer is this, he says, that's where authority comes from in the church. The need to bind the believers together in these three ways, in their belief, in their worship, and in their morality, in their practice. So he says the nature of this authority is to be gathered from its origin and its rights and duties from its nature. What does he mean by that? Well, here's what he says the modernists say about the concept of the church in the past. Here's what St. Pius X tells you, what the modernists say about the Church's understanding of her own authority in the past, before the modernists. And here you find the modernists rejecting that idea. This is what St. Pius says, and he's saying this in the mouths of the modernists. In past times, it was a common error that authority came to the Church from without, That is to say, directly from God. And it was then rightly held to be autocratic. But this conception had has now grown obsolete. Now listen to what he's saying. St. Pius X is basically quoting the modernists as saying, In past times it was a common error that authority came to the church from without, that is to say, directly from God, and it was then rightly held to be autocratic. Of course, If the authority came directly from God, of course it would have to be autocratic, right? But this idea was an error. This was a very big mistake. The church was mistaken about her own authority and where it came from. This conception, the modernist says, has grown obsolete. They are abandoning that concept of authority in the church. Authority has not come to the church from God. Authority has not come from outside the church. Rather, authority emanates from inside the church, from the body of the believers believing. From their religious experience, the believers themselves actually are the foundation of all authority in the church. The very fact that they are bound together requires an authority and the authority must come from them. And so, St. Pius says, authority, therefore, like the church itself, has its origin in the religious consciousness of the people. And that being so, the authority is subject to the religious consciousness of the people. And if it should not be subject to the religious consciousness of the people, it would become a tyranny. So you see, the modernist concept of authority in the church is not only the rejection of the past and substitution of a different idea, it is the absolute rejection of the past concept and the substitution of the exact, the polar opposite concept. It is giving us the exact opposite concept of authority. <coughs> that authority in the church must come from the people and from the mass of the people, from the whole body of the people. And if it should not be remember that, and be subject to the, the authority of the people who make up the church, then it would be tyrannical. And uh, he even indicates here, the modernist indicates that this would end in violence, and it would be overthrown by the people. Now, you would have to understand, of course, that if the faith is the experience of the people, the religious experience of the people, and that comes and goes with each generation, as St. Pius says, that all belief, when it comes to matters of doctrine, when it comes to matter of doctrine, subject to authority of the people, you'd have to see that that doctrine must itself evolve and must change. And uh, as St. Pius X explains, the modernist mindset In paragraph 26 of his encyclical, entitled The Evolution of Doctrine, this is what he has to say. First of all, they, the modernists, lay down the general principle that in a living religion everything is subject to change and must change, and in this way they pass to what may be said to be among the chief of their doctrines that of evolution, to the laws of evolution Everything is subject, dogma, church, worship, the books we revere as sacred, the Bible, even faith itself, and the penalty of disobedience is death. That is to say, the religion, the church, dies. The church will die out because unless the church is subject to the true authority of the people, that inevitably... It will be overthrown because it will pretend to be a tyranny. He goes on to say that not only must the beliefs change, but the formulas, and that's very important to point out, the meaning, the formulas themselves must change because you have the beliefs that arise from the individual religious experience of the divine. But those beliefs need to be expressed. And as soon as you start expressing those experience is in words, you immediately start having to come up with formulas that kind of encapsulate in a few words, try to express the religious experience um, that is behind it. And so, just as the religious experiences are constantly evolving, so the formulas that express them must be constantly evolving. So you can't really have dogma as such Francis has made that very clear. He detests the very concept of dogma because it is too rigid. All of these things have to be subject to change, constantly evolving, as the religious experience itself is subject to change. Just recently, Francis even made a bold statement about the religious consciousness and the religious sentiment, perfectly out of the the modernist playbook. His terminology fits perfectly with exactly what St. Pius X has condemned in his encyclical Paschandi. Now there are various serious consequences uh, to what St. Pius X has said here. Uh, he says that it is the religious experience of the faithful therefore that is the norm of faith and they have to be, it, it, one has to learn the faith, that's where revelation is taking place, that's what divine revelation is the religious experience of the faithful, is where the divine is revealing himself. Now, Francis himself has talked about the church as being an upside-down pyramid. And he has said that actually the base is the very top. It's at the top where the people are. The people are the top of the pyramid. And their faith experience is the beginning of real faith. And there has to be then a process of discerning what the faith of the people is from their experiences. That's what the synod is all about. That's where the synod starts, gathering uh, comments and observations, testimony of the people. And then, then there, what is gleaned from the people's experiences is then passed on to in, th- in the form of some kind of formulas. Somebody has to write it out and compose the people's experiences and put it in words and pass it on to the bishops. The bishops then must themselves discern from that information they receive what the true faith is at that moment because it corresponds to the experiences, the faith experiences of the people at large. And the bishops then have to formulate that into what they give to Francis. And Francis' ultimate task is to then formulate that into statements of faith, formulas of faith, which are the doctrines of the moment, because they represent the faith experience of the people at that time. This is the role of the Peter. This is the role of Peter in the church. The Petrine ministry of Francis is now to discern the faith experience of the people, and to be able to uh, relegate it to simple formulas that everyone must accept, to maintain some kind of, of, uh, at least appearance of unity in belief, even though that belief is constantly evolving and constantly subject to change. With every passing synod, we are taking the pulse of the people and we are relating that to the bishops, and then that is being related to the uh, the pontiff whose role it is to uh, express that in formulas of the moment that tell you what the people are actually experiencing at that moment. So this is the concept that St. Pius X has condemned in his encyclical Pascendi, but it is the very concept of Francis's synodal church. Now, I'm going to read for you from... Uh, Francis's address itself. It's not that long, although it seems to take forever to read, (laughs) because it's, again, difficult to follow. (laughs) But when you do follow it, you see that what he's saying here, what he's proposing, what he's intending to establish, is exactly what St. Pius X condemned in 1907 in his encyclical, Pascendi. So let's take a look at what Francis says. Another reason why I think it's important to actually read what francis wrote here is because i want you to see it's his words not mine i'm not interpreting what he's saying uh, so much you can hear what he himself has said and you can determine for yourself uh, you know the obvious meaning <clears throat> i read you at the beginning of his statement he said the time of the second vatican council from the time of the second vatican council until the present assembly we have experienced Ever more intensely, the necessity and beauty of journeying together. Perfect modernist uh, expression here. Experienced, necessity, and journeying together. uh, Journeying together is what he says synodality means. It does come from sun, in Greek, meaning together, and hodos, meaning way. So it's the way together. When they talk about the synodal way or the synodal path, They're actually being redundant because synod means the way together. But in any case, that is neither here nor there when it comes to modernists. But let me continue here. After giving congratulations to those who worked toward building the synodal church, this is what he says. From the beginning of my ministry as Bishop of Rome, I sought to enhance the synod, which is one of the most precious legacies of the Second Vatican Council. For Blessed Paul VI, the Synod of Bishops, was meant to reproduce reproduce the image of the Ecumenical Council. Now, he doesn't mean the Ecumenical Council in general. He means the Ecumenical Council of Vatican II. The Synod is meant to be the continuous echo of Vatican II, as it were, or the reconvening, you might say, even, of Vatican II, the continuation of Vatican II in the Church. That's what he's saying here. And reflect its spirit and its method. But Paul foresaw that the organization of the Synod could, quote, be improved upon with the passing of time. Twenty years later, St. John Paul II echoed that thought when he stated that this instrument might be further improved, perhaps collegial pastoral responsibility could be more fully expressed in the Synod. And in 2006, Benedict XVI approved several changes to the Ordo Sino Episcoporum, especially in light of the provisions of the Code of Canon Law and the Code of Canons of the Eastern Churches, which had been promulgated in the meantime. So this point is that all of these men were on board with the Synod. All of them were involved in making it come into existence. Then Francis says, We must continue along this path. The world in which we live, and which we are called to love and serve, even with its contradictions, demands that the church strengthen cooperation in all areas of her mission. It is precisely this path of synodality which God expects of the church in the third millennium. So he he makes it quite clear that he's constructing a church specifically for this third millennium, which is not the same as the church that has gone before it. He continues, what the the Lord is asking of us is already in some sense present in the very word synod, journeying together. Laity, pastors, the Bishop of Rome is an easy concept to put into words, but not so easy to put into practice. After stating that the people of God is comprised of all the baptized, who are called to be a spiritual house and a holy priesthood, the Second Vatican Council went on to say that the whole body of the faithful who have an anointing which comes from the Holy One, cannot err in matters of belief. This characteristic is shown in the supernatural sense of the faith of the whole people of God. When from the bishops to the last of the faithful, it manifests a universal consensus in matters of faith and morals. These are the famous words, infallible, infallible, in credendo," is what he says here. And uh, he continues that, that idea. In the apostolic exhortation Evangelii Gaudium, I emphasized that the people of God is holy thanks to this anointing, which makes it infallible in credendi, in credendo, and added that all the baptized, whatever their position in the church or their level of instruction in the faith, are agents of evangelization. <clears throat> and it would be sufficient to envision a plan of evangelization it would be insufficient to envision, envisage a plan of evangelization to be carried out by professionals, while the rest of the faithful would simply be passive participants, passive recipients. The census fide prevents a rigid separation between an ecclesia dociens and an ecclesia diciens, since the flock likewise has an instinctive ability. To discern the new ways that the Lord is revealing to the church. So again, he makes it very clear. He's talking about new ways now that the Lord is, dis- is uh, uh, revealing to the church. So there's more new revelation. There's modern revelation. Our Lord is revealing to the church the new way it should take. As though the church in the past was in the dark. And that's exactly what Francis is saying. Do you n- remember what St. Pius X said? that the modernists think that the old construct of authority in the church is obsolete, the idea of authority coming from God? Well, Francis is saying this exact same thing here. He's saying the idea of the past, of the ecclesia deutochens, the church teaching, and the ecclesia decens, the church learning, is no longer possible. He says that the idea of synodality prevents that rigid separation now. He's saying that's obsolete now. What the church used to believe of her very self, what was truly constitutive of the church itself, as the church always understood and believed, is no longer applicable. Christ is vetoing that, showing it's obsolete, showing us a new way. And what is the new way? Again, if you read over those last two paragraphs, better than I did, you'll find that what Francis is actually saying is He's pulling a switch. He's like a, he's pulling a switcheroo in a sense. He's actually using some traditional formulas uh, to be infallible in credendo. Um, The sensus fide, the sense of of faith and the faithful. And he's trying to actually say that um, there really is no distinction, no clear distinction between the hierarchy and the authority of magisterium in the church and the people at large. He's saying that, in fact, all the church is at once the church, uh, the teaching church and the learning church. All the church. All the church. The people, the bishops, the priests, they're all the teaching church, and they're all the learning church. Does this not actually echo exactly what he's saying here when he talks about synodality as a process? And you listen for this, and you'll hear it. You'll hear what he says here. He says, "...such was the conviction underlying my desire that the people of God should be consulted in the preparation of the two phases of the synod on the family, as is ordinarily done with each lineamenta. Certainly a consultation of this sort would never be sufficient to perceive the sensus fidei. But how could we speak of the family without engaging families themselves, listening to their joys and their hopes, their sorrows and their anguish." Now the question that might arise is, how does listening to the joys and the hopes, the sorrows and the anguish of the families in any way alter the doctrine of the Church and the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ with regard to what the family is and what it must be? How would this in any way impact and in any way alter the teaching of Christ? But Francis is saying they can't discuss this matter without listening to these things from the people without this input, only then can they actually pursue the process of discerning what the faith is or should be from listening to the joys and the hopes and the sorrows and the anguish of the people. This is the beginning of this synodal process. How did Pope Pius XI write about the family? How did he write about the education of youth? How did he write about these things? How did he write about, uh, in Casta Canubi, how did he write about the Catholic family, in, uh, in um, Divini Elise Magistri, how did he write about the Christian education of youth, without calling together uh, synods of young people and families and consulting with them and hearing what they had to say, and only then actually deciding what the Church could teach about families and family life, and only then deciding what the Church could teach about the education of young people. As though the Church has no doctrine, unless she first, or should have no doctrine, unless she first consults those, the people who are living the faith experience at the moment. What Francis is saying here, essentially, is that the Church had no business writing about these things, or lecturing about these things, or teaching about these things, without consulting the people first. He says it would be wrong to do so. That's why he has undertaken to do exactly that, and... You know, he's finally got it right, because this is what Christ is finally revealing to the church after 2,000 years of existence. This is what he really wants and what he wanted all along. A synodal church, Francis says, is a church which listens, which realizes that listening is more than simply hearing. It is a mutual listening in which everyone has something to learn. Everyone, remember everyone in the church is the church listening or the church learning the people learning from their faith experiences the bishops learning from the people and the pope the pope learning from the bishops and then turning around and expressing the people's experiences in simple formulas so that all can embrace them and hold them in common a mutual listening in which everyone has something to learn the faithful the people, the College of Bishops, the Bishop of Rome, all listening to each other, and all listening to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, in order to know what He says to the churches. Okay, so this is where the, we're getting the voice of the Holy Spirit, as He says, is welling up from the people below, or as He wants it, from above, and drift, trickling down, trickling down to Him who is at the uh, the apex at the very bottom of the pyramid. Um, Why would we call the spirit the spirit of truth if he doesn't know the truth unless we first listen to what the people are experiencing? Um, Perhaps he's saying that this spirit of truth is revealing himself to the people and they have to then reveal themselves to the bishop and they have to reveal the spirit to Francis for him to finally know what the faith is or should be and it's up to him them to express it. Uh, No wonder no wonder we might well call this the tower of babel in our own day that francis is actually trying to construct the tower of babel because it really is full of babel it is a modern day attempt to construct a an upside down pyramid of a church and it is full of babel which he attributes to the spirit now, Francis goes on to say the Synod of Bishops is the point of convergence of this listening process conducted at every level of the Church's life. The Synod process begins, he says, it causes a process. It's not just a concept, it's a process. And getting the process right is difficult, he says. But the Synod process begins by listening to the people of God. Listen to the people. Which shares also in Christ's prophetic office, so the people of God actually share, quote unquote, shares in Christ's prophetic office, the office of Christ. The people share in that, according to a principle dear to the Church, of the first millennium. Quonones um, tangit abonibus tractari debet. No, that is that is complete fabrication. As later he claims to quote St. John Chrysostom. It's a complete fabrication. It is put in there as window dressing to make you think this is traditional. Something dear to the church of the first millennium and he's carrying it into the third millennium? No, he's rejecting it. Don't believe that. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a basically a lie. He continues, the synod process then continues by listening to the pastors. So first, The synod process begins by listening to the people. The pastors listen to the people. Then the bishops have to listen to the pastors, or maybe they are among the pastors. He doesn't make it clear here. Through the synod fathers, the bishops act as authentic guardians, interpreters, and witnesses of the faith of the whole church, which they need to discern carefully from the changing currents of public opinion. And that, that expression there, it, it bears a certain amount of attention, too. He says that the bishops have to be interpreters, guardians, interpreters, and witnesses of the faith of the whole church, which they need to discern. They need to discern the faith carefully from the changing currents of public opinion. Now, first of all, it's clear what he's saying. They're discerning what the faith is from listening to the people, but the, the, the suggestion here is they need to distinguish what they're hearing from the believers from the, current, uh, the changing currents of public opinion. But whenever he uses the word discern, <clears throat> he uses the word discerning truth. <clears throat> and so that could well be interpreted and, and justifiably being interpreted that the bishops need to listen to the changing currents of public opinion not distinguishing faith from what the changing currents of public opinion are, but finding it in the changing currents of public opinion. They have to discern faith from these things too. And uh, he continues there. On the eve of last year's synod, I stated, for the synod fathers, we ask the Holy Spirit, first of all, for the gift of listening, to listen to God. Now see if you can determine here See if you can discern here, discern, notice, a contradiction, a vicious circle in what he says. For the Synod Fathers, we ask the Holy Spirit, first of all, for the gift of listening, to listen to God so that with him we may hear the cry of his people, to listen to his people until we are in harmony with the will to which God calls us. Now, how is one to understand that? If we continue reading, it doesn't make it clear, it makes it even more murky. But we're supposed to ask that uh, in listening to God, we may hear the cry of his people, to listen to his people, so that in listening to his people now, we can listen to, as it were, the cry of God. So where does this all start? Is this not kind of a vicious circle between God's voice and the cry of the people? And we listen to the cry of the people. We start with God and asking him to allow us to hear the cry of the people so in the cry of the people we can hear what God is telling us. What does this mean? The synod process culminates. So this is the, the height now. The process begins with the people goes to the pastors, the bishops, and then this is the last step. The synod process culminates in listening to the bishop of Rome, who is called to speak as pastor and teacher of all Christians, not on the basis of his personal convictions. Notice that this synodal process is entirely based on, for instance, his own personal convictions. The whole thing is his invention. He says it is what the Spirit is telling him personally to do right now. So how can he say this? That he cannot, the, the, the Bishop of Rome cannot speak on the basis of his own personal convictions when this whole synodal process is his own, his own invention. But as the supreme witness to the fides totius ecclesiae, so that's what the Pope has become now. This is what the papacy has become. The papacy is the supreme witness to the faith of the whole church. The faith of the whole Church, which has been discerned from the people and distilled by the bishops and presented to the Pope. And now he's the supreme witness of what that faith is. He is the guarantor of obedience and the conformity of the Church to the will of God, to the Gospel of Christ, and to the tradition of the Church. Notice they have a very different meaning of the word tradition than anything the Church has traditionally believed. They have an entirely new concept of tradition, even as they have an entirely new concept of faith. So again, you have a vicious cir- circle here, and it's very hard to tell where does this all begin? Does it begin with the people? Does it begin with God inspiring the people to uh, experience faith and then teach the bishops who then teach the Pope, who then has to distill uh, the formulas of belief of the moment that everyone can all be united in accepting those same formulas. Um, St. Pius X said that the, the authority of the Church, according to the modernist, comes to the people, and the authority is there to try to keep them united. And so when you read Francis here, this is the point of the whole synodality process, he says. It comes down to him expressing the formulas as the witness of the, of the, of the whole faith, the faith of the whole church he's the witness of it and that is supposed to guarantee unity so everybody can rally around him and follow him and not his personal convictions but he is simply relaying to you not his own faith but the faith as it is presented to him by the bishops as they've discerned it from the people and that is what everyone now is supposed to unite around again it's a completely artificial construct for the sake of some artificial unity based upon nothing real something constantly changing something constantly developing and progressing the modernists would say but we know it is a corruption of faith so he goes on to say that this is this is the point of the petrine office that he has the purpose of it is to be a guarantee of unity. And it is not a guarantee of unity according to revealed truth, notice, in the traditional Catholic sense of the word. It is a guarantee of unity around the consensus of the people as to what the experience of faith is for them at this moment. That is what the unity is to be. That's what it's all about. He, he then actually starts all over again. Yeah, he actually does. He starts all over again. Very often you find this in what he writes. He goes through the whole process. He states it one way. And then at some point, it's like he starts over again and, and repeats it in a different way. And here he says, after having gone through all that, he says, synodality as a constitutive element of the church offers us the most appropriate interpretive framework for understanding the hierarchical ministry itself. Now he's going to talk about the process again, but he's going to talk about how the hierarchy that Francis envisions, which is not the Catholic hierarchy, must be constructed according to the synodal way. In other words, the synodal church has to have a hierarchy that conforms to its structure. He's already said it uh, moments before, but it's not uh, redundant to simply uh, to to actually give you highlights of what he says here. By the way, this is precisely the point where he uh, cites John Chrysostom, St. John Chrysostom. I've taken this uh, reference and gone to the source itself uh, in both the Latin translation and the Greek. And what he represents here as the thought of St. John Chrysostom has nothing to do with anything expressed by Saint John Chrysostom, in the in that reference, nothing whatsoever to do. This idea of journeying together, where we're all equals, Saint John Chrysostom never said anything of the kind. And he's counting on people not checking his references clearly because it's very obvious, John Chrysostom had said nothing of the kind. But Saint <clears throat> Francis develops here this concept, new concept of a hierarchy tailor-made for his synodal church. He has to reinvent the hierarchy, including the papacy, to follow his synodality. He says that synodality uh, requires that all authority be based on service. It's all about service. And uh, now we might say, well, that's, that's true. As Christ came as the servant and washed the feet of his apostles and so on, it's very clear that there has some truthfulness to this statement anyway. But it has nothing to do with the concept that Francis has of authority, that all authority is subservient to the church, because authority comes from within the church and from the mass of the faithful. The modernist concept, that he is there to serve the church because he is a, you might say, product of the church. In a synodal church, the synod of bishops is only the most evident manifestation of of a dynamism, of communion, which inspires all ecclesiastical decisions. The first level, again, he starts this process again, the first level of the exercise of synodality is had in the particular churches. Again, you're going back to the diocesan level, the parish level, you're going back to the level of the people. But here he's restating it in the, in the level, kind of like structure, the structure of the synodal church. You see, so we're going back to the, the most fundamental uh, synod or uh, uh, committees, most fundamental committees in the Church. And in this regard, he actually gets to the very heart of the meaning of synod because synod has come to mean, in the languages of the world, committees. Uh, the synod is like a small council. It is basically a committee. And uh, when Francis talks about establishing the synodal church, he's talking about a church which has its foundation in committees, and then the word of the faith passing on from those committees to higher-level committees to higher-level committees to higher-level committees, essentially, is what he's saying here. He says the first level begins on the level of the particular churches throughout the world, The second level is that of ecclesiastical provinces and ecclesiastical regions, again, which is basically on the level of higher committees, committees over committees. And he says the last level is that of the universal church. Here the synod of bishops representing the Catholic episcopate becomes an expression of episcopal collegiality uh, with the pope in solicitude for the people of God, he says. And then he wraps up and gives a little summary he says the commitment to build a synodal church a mission to which we are all called each with the role entrusted him by the lord has significant ecumenical implications so now he's going to apply this new concept of the church to ecumenism and the point being that now we're opening the doors we're opening the doors to churches, uh, well, he calls other churches, separated churches, that might see the synodal church as much more welcoming to them. Because it's not this autocratic autocratic church which has received authority directly from God. It's not this autocratic church that distinguishes between a church teaching and a church learning. Now we're all teaching and we're all learning together. This opens the door now for ecumenical outreach to other churches. This is where he's summing up now how this is going to open the floodgates, he hopes, for the, uh, an ecumenical effort to unite the churches in his new synodal church. I am persuaded that in a synodal church, greater light can be shed on the exercise of the Petrine minist- primacy, he says. The Pope is not by himself above the Church, but within it, as one of the baptized, and within the College of Bishops, as a bishop among bishops, called at the same time as successor of Peter, to lead the Church of Rome, which presides in charity over all the churches. Again, you you understand what he's saying here. Presiding is a matter of discerning the faith from below, and being the one to construct the formulas that un- we're all going to rally around and unite in saying, even though these formulas are changing from generation to generation, from day to day even, as they evolve. Now, the, uh, it's important to remember what Francis said earlier, actually. I didn't quote this, but Francis did say that he, he's open for a rethinking of the papacy. We have to redivine, redesign the papacy. Yes, I guess you could say we have to redivine the papacy, uh, as in terms of divina- divination. <laughs> um, we we have to reconstruct and rethink the office of the papacy. Francis has said that. He said it in so many words here, and um, so you understand we're talking about a man who doesn't actually believe in the papacy as divinely constituted by Christ, except for having a role in the church of the church that comes from the church itself a role of service to the church to try to be the one to express in the formulas of the moment what the faith experience of the people is at that time and that is actually essentially the role of peter in francis's mind this is who he is in as in his own mind the successor of peter this is what he's called to do. He says, while affirming the urgent need to think about, quote, a conversion of the papacy. Notice what he says here. These are his words. While reaffirming the urgent need to think about, quote, a conversion of the papacy. I willingly repeat the words of my predecessor, Pope John Paul II. As Bishop of Rome, I am fully aware that Christ ardently desires the full and visible communion of of all of those communities in which by virtue of God's faithfulness his spirit dwells. And so he's saying, he's quoting John Paul II, as saying, I'm very much aware of the need to gather in these communities and reunite them. The ecumenical outreach, see. He says we have this situation now when we can realize this, when we can make strides in this, in this regard. Francis is taking that great stride and establishing a synodal church which all the other ecclesiastical communities can join without habitually having to accept the Catholic faith or become attached to and included within the Catholic church because Francis now has a substitute. He now has a synodal church instead where they can all join and they don't have to become Catholic. Quite the contrary. Our gaze, he says, also extends to humanity as a whole. A synodal church is like a standard lifted up among the nations. In a world which, while calling for participation, solidarity and transparency and public administration often consigns the fate of entire peoples to the grasp of a small but powerful group. As a church which journeys together with men and women sharing the travails of history, let us cherish the dream that a rediscovery of the inviolable dignity of peoples and of the function of authority as service, will also be able to help civil society to be built up in justice and fraternity and thus bring about a more beautiful and humane world for coming generations. Thank you. So he ends by pointing out that the church now can lead the way actually uh, in in showing the the world what true democracy is, essentially. Uh, The church can lead the way now in uh, sur- surpassing the world in, in a democratic spirit um, of uh, people uh, tr- passing through the travails of history together and we're all united now. So uh, not only uh, as St. As Pius X says do the modernists regard democracy and the world as a pattern which must be imposed upon the church Francis goes beyond that and says now by our syn- synodal church we can actually surpass the world in the very concept of, of democracy and synodality. And we can show what a true representative church really is. What is this, what is this thing that Francis is actually building here? Well, ultimately, it, it is the Soviet church. It is the Soviet church. If you were to go back and you were to examine the, the communist idea of the Soviet Union, You would find the pattern of Francis's Soviet church here. I'm not overstating this, I believe. I think you would see very clearly that the Soviets had the idea, okay, that society should be built upon the working class, upon the people, their experiences. And so when the Soviets, when the communists were organizing Soviet Russia. Soviet society along communist Marxist lines. They started out by organizing these committees of workmen in the various forms. I mean, there you had the maritime workers, you had the steel workers, you had um, those working in agriculture, and they would actually form kind of society unions, uh, what were known as Soviets. They had, they had Soviets committees established to represent all of these different working men. And then above them they would have another level. They would report to higher level associates, committees formed of the leaders of the lower Soviets. And those committees then would report to the higher level Soviets, to the synods, or to the committees, and and until this entire structure would finally converge upon the secretary of the Communist Party, Lenin, Stalin. And all of these Soviets, all of these committees, all of these synods would all report to him what was the experience, what was the need, what was the hope and the desire of the common working man in the field, in the steel mill, at the dock. And it was then the, the uh, secretary of the Communist Party who was then to speak on behalf of them all. And pronounce the Soviet, the Communist, the Marxist uh, truism of the moment, uh, upon which the entire uh, the entire Union of Soviet Socialist Republics could unite in the voice of the uh, in the voice of the Secretary of the Communist Party. It is not a stretch to see this. It is actually a, corresponds clearly with this entire structure. Of a synodal church of Francis, as he himself describes it in 2015, and as he is now about to construct it, you know, he 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 himself has taken it upon himself to invite hundreds of people to take part. They're they're chosen, and he himself is controlling who is whose voice is going to be held heard at the the Soviets, the synod in uh, in Rome, in the Vatican, in uh, October of 2023 you have those who are going to have right to come to the synod and be heard participate ex officio because they have certain positions because they're a bishop of this or they're a prefect of that they have a right because of those official positions they hold automatically they're included in the synod but there are literally hundreds of others whom Francis has personally invited to express his personal take on things. And one thing you notice when you read down the list of all those whom he has invited, they all ha- are open to the LGBTQ mentality and the openness to forming an LGBTQ church. The Synodal Church, as far as Francis is concerned, is the LGBTQ church. If you want to see what his mind is in calling the synod, look at those whom he's invited. And they've all expressed their openness to formally accepting the LGBTQ mentality, you might even be willing to say lifestyle. Francis is continually praising them, rewarding them, awarding them, holding them up as examples He has them come and uh, see him in highly publicized personal audiences with him. He embraces them openly. And those he appoints to positions of authority in his modernist church are all open. They're publicly open to the LGBTQ mentality and lifestyle. This is what this synod is all about. Forming the Synodal Church, the Synodal LGBTQ Church, where you're going to find this great openness to uh, the, you you might call it the Synod, uh, the ultimate Synod of perversion. Uh, The Rainbow Synod, what is its symbol? Look, check, see for yourself. What is the emblem for the Synod that Francis has chosen to represent his purpose? And, and, and this Tower of Babel that he is constructing. Now, I know I've gone on for quite a while, and I apologize for that. I did warn you ahead of time it was a little convoluted. And there's much more that could be said right now. I'm going to close with this, though. Francis just appointed a man who was an archbishop to uh, have the position of leading the synod. And this man is, was Archbishop Victor Manuel Fernandez. Uh, Archbishop Fernandez now has been named a cardinal uh, to give him the authority that he needs to preside uh, over this Synod of Francis. This, This Archbishop Fernandez is best known now for being the author of the book, Heal Me With Your Mouth, The Art of Kissing, which he claims to have written for teenagers, recently he said that, and which is very erotic. This book. This is a this is a so-called clergyman, priest, bishop, archbishop of, well, going to lead the charge to uh, establish. You might say that he is the uh, uh, designer, or he's, he's going to be the project manager for France building Francis's synodal church is what he's going to be. Francis point, appointed him the new prefect for the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, not a congregation, but the dicastery. For the doctrine of the faith, this man is going to be in charge of that. And he hates doctrine and he hates dogma, he hates truth every bit as much as Francis does. He is quoted as saying this, actually, which expresses so much, expresses virtually everything we need to know about what to expect, forming before our very eyes in October of 2023. This is what Vyananandas says. You know that for many centuries, the church went in another direction. It unwittingly developed a whole philosophy and morality full of classification, to classify people, to put labels on people. This one is like this. This one is like that. This one can receive communion. This one cannot receive communion. This one can be forgiven this one cannot. Terrible that this has happened to us in the Church. Thank God, Pope Francis is helping us to free ourselves from these patterns, patterns of morality and principles of morality, patterns of divinely revealed truth. Francis is helping us to extricate the Church from this, from uh, truth and morality. And, uh, certainly is uh, building the Tower of Babel today. Yet it just amazes me that people are still clinging to this idea that Francis somehow is the vicar of Christ on earth when he himself, Francis, has rejected that title for himself. Enough of all of this squabbling about this issue. Uh, we see a, a revolution taking place that is not just the substitution of one thing for another, It is the complete rejection of what the Church has always believed, what the Church has always taught, what the Church has always practiced, what the Church has always been. It is a rejection of our Lord Jesus Christ and everything that he has said and taught and everything that the Holy Ghost has preserved in in Catholic sacred tradition. It is an absolute rejection of all of this. And Francis starts it by rejecting the papacy itself. He has rejected the very concept of the papacy, even in, as he tries to appeal to it, to give him the authority to carry out this work of demolition of the Church. It is time we stopped the fantasies and we started talking about the necessity of holding on to the traditional faith and holding for dear life onto the practice of the traditional Catholic religion. That is, what our, that is our position now. That is what the Church has always required of her faithful in times of crisis, that so they hold fast to the traditional Catholic faith in her beliefs, her doctrines, her moral principles, that Catholics always adhere to the traditional Catholic practice in her worship. In the means of sanctification of the sacraments and the Holy Mass, this is what we have to do. We have to practice Catholic tradition and not follow this path to tradition of Francis's synodal path, his synodal church. Do not join the Tower of Babel, please. Remain true Catholics traditional Catholics, holding fast to Catholic tradition. May God bless you all.